1: It is time now to welcome Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence. Of course, Danielle is former advisor at the Dallas Fed and also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and she's based in Dallas. Danielle, what do you make of the idea that we may not get stimulus before the election while the pandemic lingers? So there's that. And that will definitely put a pin in any kind of burgeoning recovery that we're seeing.
2: Well, I...
3: I think that there are two different factors at work in today's markets. One of them is that there is this underlying weakness that is going to continue to play out in state and local employment, for example. In, in, in families who are just getting by and were waiting uh, patiently as, as, as they could for that next true stimulus package that provided them with a weekly jolt of, of income while they continue to wait out a full and, and escape velocity, if you will, reopening of the U.S. economy. The other thing I think that's at play today, though, is the, the market trying to wrap its head around quantitatively what these stopgap measures will accomplish. There is a lot of money in Uncle Sam's checking account, the Treasury General account, and money that can be can be pulled upon. But What what will what will it do to, say, keep the airline workers on payrolls versus the rest of the country that needs stimulus measures not receiving them? What might twelve hundred dollars do? Can those checks come out before Election Day? And most importantly, I think what's driving trading today is rumblings on trading floors about Bill Gates saying we might not need a vaccine if what treated President Trump is as good as it is we might be able to move past the pandemic with just treatments in hand.
0: So, Danielle, you know, the the administration is touting uh, the declining unemployment rate, the fact that the the people are going back to work. But at the same time, we see big companies like the Walt Disney Company talking about, you know, laying off an additional 28,000 employees. What is your sense as to the underlying health Uh, of the uh, employment market or lack thereof in the United States?
3: Well, I think it's more important to look past 28,000 is a huge mass layoff figure. It gets gets a lot of headlines, but two-thirds of those workers were were part-time. So the economic, the macroeconomic impact is not nearly as bad as Wells Fargo's announcement this morning that it was going to be laying off another 700 employees of KPMG announcing that it would be laying off uh, white collar workers, in tax, in auditing, in consulting. Um, The list goes on and on of companies that are beginning to cut at headquarters, salaried employees. If you looked at the job openings data yesterday, the worst category by far was business and professional services. And in Friday's payroll report, we saw three consecutive months of losses, again, in business and professional services. These are the highest paying positions that account for the vast majority of U.S. consumption. And they will continue as these white collar job losses percolate through the economy. That will continue to trickle down, but not in a good way, to the smaller businesses that are still holding on, but in need of their of their business.
1: So, Danielle, what happens next? How does the economy recover? How do people get by I mean, what, the Federal Reserve has done as much as it can. There's possibly things it can do. It says its toolbox is never empty. But essentially, this is a, a federal government issue. Does Joe Biden need to get elected and then, you know, implement a huge amount of stimulus?
3: Well, I think the, the scenario, the, the the latter of the two scenarios that you just painted out has been playing out in the bond market uh, for the better part of a week now. And we've seen bond yields break out of a very tight range in which they had been stuck. Anticipating some massive stimulus spending bill, uh, if Biden is, is is victorious on on election day or in the days that follow, the question I have, though, for all politicians inside the Beltway is whether or not they're going to be looking to implement some programs that have proven successful in Germany: jobs reskills training, vocational training, infrastructure spending. More than throwing money at people who, who need it, and I'm not saying we should put people out on the street by any means, but more than that, actually providing means by which people can get back into the workforce forcibly the way that it was done years ago in the New Deal when there were no bridges and tunnels. Now we just have crumbling bridges and tunnels and roads that need to be repaired. I would hope that, that order of business number one would we'll be looking to stimulus spending measures that not just make sure people were put back on their feet, but also that gave them job opportunities.
0: So, Danielle, we heard from Fed Chairman Powell uh, speaking yesterday uh, at an economics uh, conference calling for fiscal stimulus yet again. Um, does Congress listen to, to Fed chair people, when, uh, Fed chairman, when they do speak about fiscal stimulus?
3: Well, Congress's track record is pretty, is pretty spotty on that count. Bernanke spent years of his career as head of the Fed uh, pleading with Congress to do more on the fiscal side and to be more creative on the fiscal side, uh, and he got the Heisman time and again, which is why we ended up having QE2 and QE3. Uh, the problem I have with, with Powell, though, is on a more fundamental level, and that is that it appears that most of the Fed's tools in the toolbox are broken. And the one thing that, that Powell knows he can do if there's fresh Treasury issuance in order to finance stimulus spending, it is buy those bonds via yep. quantitative easing that filters back into the stock market.
0: Danielle DiMartino Booth, thank you so much for joining us yet again. We always appreciate your insights. Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence former advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Uh, Also, you know, uh, just extraordinary uh, book. Uh, She's the author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion on Bloomberg Radio. Ty Kim, technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joins us here. There's some significant news out recently. The House of Representatives out with a report suggesting some key Regulatory oversight provisions for some of the biggest tech companies out there, including Apple, Google, Amazon, and Facebook. Uh, Tay Kim, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. How? Just give us a sense of what the House report says, and how worried should some of these tech companies be?
4: I think the technology companies should be worried. Um, this report was 450 pages. The subcommittee poured over 1.3 million documents. And they really laid out the case and a pattern of anti-competitive behavior by each and every one of these big tech companies. And it kind of lays out a roadmap and a case for action over in the coming year. And they gave a bunch of remedies. Some of them, more aggressive ones, may not happen in a bipartisan Congress. But you never know what happens uh, with the November election if there's a, a Democratic sweep. And I do think we're gonna, there's a good chance some of these remedies will be put into action in the, in the coming year.
1: Do we have an outline of the types of remedies Congress is looking for?
4: Yeah, they, they have like a dozen things in there. Um, the most important one is a structural separation of any dominant platform if they compete with other competitors on their business. Um, another big one is a, a shift of burden of proof. So whenever one of these big dominant platform, big tech companies buy a company in the future, um, they're going to have to prove that it's not anti-competitive. So the burden of proof will be on the technology company to argue that it's not anti-competitive. So those are two big ones. Um, so there are a lot of uh, recommendations that they laid out.
0: So, Tay, I think, you know, historically, the United States has taken a very light touch to big tech in terms of regulations, uh, I guess, preferring to foster innovation. And we can all argue whether that's been net positive or negative, but certainly it's helped... Silicon Valley. Is there a a real bipartisan support for significantly regulating these big tech companies like an Amazon, like an Apple? Right now, there isn't bipartisan
4: support uh, for the more aggressive remedies, but there is support for certain things such as increasing funding for the antitrust regulators, the FTC and the uh, antitrust division, the TOJ. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, there isn't like the Republicans aren't on board for more of these uh, aggressive breakup um, actions.
1: Does any of this change if we get a change in leadership, or even you know a change in the Senate, for example?
4: I, I think so. Like if the Senate changes and there's a Biden administration, um, it was reported earlier this week that Biden the Biden team was given a heads up on on this report. So I think if we see a Democratic administration, we'll see some action. Um, another thing that the report outlined was um, potential limits on self-preferential behavior by Google and Apple. So what Google does is they kind of bolster their own services on top of search results and potentially with either the DOJ, uh, which actually is on the Trump administration, um, potentially um, putting out the report later this week or next week uh, to go after Google in terms of antitrust lawsuit. Um, that's another thing that that could be put into action. And also Apple's App Store, um, I could see it, certain legislation to limit Apple from preferential treatment for their uh, apps and services.
0: So, Tay, I think even uh, last year, or I believe it was, when the Federal Trade Commission uh, and the Department of Justice kind of divvied up these big tech companies and say, okay, you take a look, you DOJ, you take a look at these companies, You, Federal Trade Commission, you take a look at these companies. Is this report in concert with those investigations, or is it separate from them? And and how are they tied together, if at all?
4: Uh, So I think they're pretty separate. This was the House subcommittee uh, doing their investigation. The DOJ is on their own path, and the most imminent one is uh, a lawsuit that's going to sue Google for for their uh, search engine and the dominance in the ad platform business. But I, I do believe they're separate. But they all, they're all they all tied in together of greater scrutiny of big technology companies because, I mean, everyone agrees that these companies are just so dominant in their markets and something needs to be done. And this 450-page report really, I think, is an important step because it outlines this huge pattern of behavior. Uh, specifically, I, I think the most egregious is Amazon in terms of how they, you know, relied on individual seller data to inform their private label business. So, so there's this great pattern behavior of these companies using their market power. And I think this this report, this fast report, is a really good step in terms of going to the next level of actual uh, actions against these companies.
1: So these companies, many of them have been dealing with or working with these types of issues let's say in europe for a very very long time margaret of was one of the you know most fierce competition commissioners that the european commission has ever seen and all of the companies that we're talking about had had to work with her what lessons can they learn in terms of how they deal with congress how will how will you know what the u.s wants from these companies differ from what the eu wanted and ultimately got from most of these companies
4: so the EU is actually in progress with a number of these antitrust probes also. Um, they started a few months ago uh, investigating Apple and how they require their in-app purchasing and the 15 to 30% cut. So I think we're actually going to see a lot of these um, actions come together at once, and, and the EU is still involved and in really working, especially on the Apple front. So I, I think we'll see a lot of these um, governments. But they're all on, their, on all their separate tracks. Mm. Like They're not really working together. Um, potentially we'll see the state attorney generals and the DOJ. I think the DOJ is trying to get the state attorney generals on board for their uh, Google lawsuit. So they're all on their separate tracks. But I, I do think over the coming year, we're definitely seeing more uh, scrutiny action.
0: You look at the stocks, the stocks aren't worried. Stocks are trading up. They're not trading down on this news, particularly. What does that tell you, Ty? Um
4: I think day-to-day it's, it's, it's tough to say. I mean, I think um, – This stuff is going to take a long time to get legislated out, uh, a year or two at the earliest. I mean, this is not something that you could flip on a switch and say, oh, new Congress, they're going to work on it. So it's going to take time. And, I mean, I I don't really foresee, like, vast breakups, per se, but I do see on the margin rule changes, limiting acquisitions, like I said, the self-preferential behavior, and maybe perhaps Amazon being compelled to give up the private label business. So I'm not saying that, you know, their earnings power is going to get smashed because of the scrutiny, but I do think there will be actions where there will be limits to their behaviors, and um, in terms of crushing competitors and things like that, some of that action will, will be limited also.
1: Take him. Always a fascinating conversation. Take him as technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and we thank him for joining us today. And you know, it really is interesting, Paul. You preparing, uh, you know, a digital services act, so an actual act of regulation. And if you go on a, a website for any of these companies, in Europe at the moment you know you have to answer a whole load of information about you know what you're allowing them to take from you in terms of your privacy and so on you don't you don't typically get that yet in the U.S. Let's get straight to our next guest. Jeannie Zeno, is political contributor and professor of political science at Iona College. Jeannie, a lot to talk about, not least the VP debate tonight. But first, let's talk about Nancy Pelosi trolling the president on The View a few moments ago, having had a conversation this morning with Steve Mnuchin about airline aid that apparently is going nowhere. Does Donald Trump bite before the debate tonight? Does he make some kind of unilateral announcement or uh, something to do with stimulus?
2: you know i I'm not very good at predicting what Donald Trump will do um, so i i I hesitate to do that, but if I had to guess, I would say I do think he will respond. um He was very, very active on Twitter, as you know, and you've been talking about all night um and so i you know from yesterday, late yesterday to into today, so I would be surprised if he didn't respond and of course. This does, I, I have to say, this does work to the president's advantage. He, he wants to, um, you know, set this up as a debate between him and, and particularly the Democratic leadership in the House led by Nancy Pelosi. So I think any chance he gets to do that, he's going to do that. And this is a way to energize his base. So I would be surprised if he didn't respond.
0: Jeannie, you know, I want to ask you about, what you think President Trump's strategy is here. But every time I mention President Trump and strategy, Tim O'Brien, Bloomberg opinion columnist and longtime uh, Trump chronicler tells me that the president does not have a strategy. But (laughs) what do you think his strategy is here, so close to the election, seemingly handing uh, the opposition a victory?
2: yeah and I have to say, you just made me chuckle because Tim is so right about that, and I would never ever disagree with him on anything to do with Trump, um, and I do think he 's right; there does not seem to be a strategy and in this case, when we were getting these tweets last night, these mixed messages about the stimulus package, I was scratching my head to try to figure out what could the thinking be for most people running for office, the opportunity to invest money into the pockets of the people voting for them would be something they would jump at. So the idea that the president took that off the table when it seemed they were you know, getting much closer in the last few days was absolutely baffling from a sort of electoral campaign political standpoint. Strategy perspective. And then to your point, I had Tim running in my head saying, okay, well, maybe there is no strategy here. So, you know, it's really, really hard to tell with the president. The most I can say is, On the one hand, he makes a case about walking away from the table when you're negotiating. You have to be prepared to do that, and that seems to be what he did last night. And then he walked back right up to the table a few hours later. So, you know, we're getting these, again, mixed messages from the president, in which case he can always declare victory, and that seems to be sort of par for the course with him. If there is a deal he can declare victory— If there's not, he can say, see, I told you so. And I walked away before, you know, this thing didn't work.
1: Let's not forget that this is a very, very ill man right now as well. And while, you know, officially he had no symptoms yesterday, he's on huge doses of, you know, very strong chemicals. And, you know, apparently at some point that will start to wear off in the next day or two after the fifth dose of remdesivir. How much do you think that that is coloring his stance on things right now?
2: Yeah, I mean this is the million dollar question and I don't think we know as you just said that his doctors are saying that he's showing no symptoms and yet we hear from doctors who uh, you know say that this absolutely can cause you to have a reaction and that can be in you know some kind of psychological way as well. So I think the honest answer is that none of us know. That said, um even if the president wasn't on these medicines, I'm not sure any of us would be surprised by the tweeting and the decisions made in the last 24 hours vis-a-vis, or the statements made, not decisions, vis-a-vis a, some kind of stimulus package. True. So I'm not sure what the answer to that is. We hope that he is physically and mentally fine and that we as the American public are getting honest answers from his doctors. And I don't think after this weekend we can be confident about that. Mm.
0: Jeannie, we do have a vice presidential debate uh, this evening from Salt Lake City, uh, you know, typically we don't spend, pay too much attention to these VP debates, but given the ages of the two president, the president and the vice president, former Vice President Biden, seems a little bit more relevant, doesn't it?
2: It absolutely does. I think in an ideal situation, you know, the vice presidential nominees for two men in their 70s would be a big deal, as you mentioned. And then, of course, we're in a much different situation, not ideal, in the midst of a pandemic, with a president who we've just been talking about has been diagnosed, is currently under treatment, we understand, and a former vice president whose health has been called into question at numerous times you know, throughout the campaign. So Both of those things give this sort of vice presidential debate, which normally gets a rather small audience, I think it's going to get a lot more attention tonight for that reason. And then, of course, just a week ago, we had the, you know, sort of stunning presidential debate where we didn't get a lot of answers in terms of policy. So I think... We're really looking for Vice President Pence to sort of play cleanup for the the president and to sort of fill in some of those gaps that were left and try to get a, you know, a, a, you know, some scoring here for the Republicans in terms of doing a better job. Because, of course, polls show that the president did not do well, according to voters, after that last debate. So what
1: does Senator Kamala Harris have to do to avoid making a mistake, Jeannie?
2: I think what she's got to do is focus like a laser beam on COVID. I think she's got to prosecute the case, but do it in a, a, you know, not a terribly stringent way, but bring more evidence forward, if you will, that they have not done well vis-a-vis the American public in terms of managing this crisis that is the pandemic. I think if she can do that for a sustained period of time, put Pence on the defensive trying to defend you know, In many cases, what the uh, administration has done here, she will have succeeded, provided, as you mentioned, she doesn't make any mistakes. And it's going to be tough. She, we haven't seen her in a lot of one-on-one debates like this, so we're not quite sure. She's a great prosecutor. She was very good in the multi-person debate, but this is a different format, and Vice President Pence is good at this format, and I think he doesn't get enough credit for being successful in this venue.
0: Jeanne Zeno, thank you so much for joining us uh, once again. We appreciate your thoughts here as we get ready for the vice presidential debate. Jeannie Zaino, political contributor for Bloomberg News, also professor of political science at Iona at College. Uh, we always appreciate her, her thoughts here again. So, Vani, you know, the markets are going to be, you know, they seem to be not fo- obviously not focused on the debate tonight, but certainly focused on uh, Twitter and the tweets coming out of the White House as it relates to fiscal stimulus. Is it on again? Is it off again? Um, I just don't know.
1: And uh, you know, at some point, the focus will turn to the debate. It, it may be an hour before the debate, but <laughs> at some point, the president, you know, won't be able to you know, keep the limelight if he does indeed take it today. Will you be watching tonight, Paul?
0: I will. I will. I'm going to be flipping back between the Yankee game and, uh, and the debate, so we'll have to see. <laughs> uh, but there again, are other I think
1: important it, things going on. Is that what you're saying?
0: Well, the Yankees, yeah, they usually get top billing for me, so we'll see. But this will be important, so uh, I think everybody will be uh, paying attention to it. Well, there is another hurricane bearing down on the uh, southern coast of America and it is just another storm in an tr- extraordinary year of disasters, uh, certainly cop- uh, capped off by the COVID uh, pandemic. Team Rubicon is a nonprofit, veteran-led disaster response organization. They have about 170 full-time employees, 130,000 volunteers, and they have been busy this year in disaster relief. Jake, would founder and CEO of Team Rubicon joins us here. Jake, tell us a little bit about Team Rubicon, kind of where this came from and kind of where your focus is uh, in an epic 2020.
5: Yeah, well, thank you for having me on to to share the story. Uh, Team Rubicon, we're a nonprofit organization that was founded uh, about 11 years ago in the aftermath of the Haiti earthquake. Um, I had served in the Marine Corps. I served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Following the earthquake, I I led a team of of veterans and doctors down to Port-au-Prince to help with the the response effort down there. And we realized that these men and women who served in uniform overseas had a lot of skills and experiences that were applicable in disaster zones. So in the decades since, we've built up, uh, you know, a really incredible organization that leverages military veterans and first responders to go into disaster zones and humanitarian crises you know, like we've been seeing throughout 2020. I mean, you mentioned the hurricane season. We've got uh, Hurricane Delta, which has been upgraded to a Category 4. It's going to slam into southeast Louisiana. You know, this is one of many uh, major hurricanes that have hit the U.S. already this year. And all of this in the midst of of COVID-19. I mean, it's it's been a, a, ve- a year fraught with disasters and crises, and, and Team Rubicon has been there serving communities along the way.
1: So, Jake, how has COVID nineteen changed the environment for you all? I imagine you may have gotten, you know, extra volunteers in some ways if people were at home doing nothing and felt like they wanted to to, to get out there and do something if they'd been laid off or what have you. But also keeping everybody safe.
5: Yeah, well, we made a commitment early in COVID nineteen. We made two commitments. One, we were going to step into that crisis aggressively, and we were going to assist communities to get through the pandemic. And we've been doing that. We've been doing that by Uh, sending medical providers to Navajo Nation. Uh, We've been sending up uh, mobile testing sites. We've been uh, distributing PPE for the entire city of Chicago. And we flooded food banks uh, across the country with thousands of volunteers to support their efforts. But we also did it through the lens that we were always going to keep our volunteers safe. And so we very quickly developed the necessary protocols, ensured that we had the necessary PPE to keep our volunteers safe. And the one thing that we realized early was that Mother Nature didn't care about COVID-19. And we never predicted that we'd have a storm season quite like we've had. But we knew that we were going to have to continue to respond to natural disasters in the midst of this. So that has required us to rework all of our disaster response protocols, ranging from how we fly in volunteers, how they transport in vehicles, how they sleep at night, um, the types of equipment that they have to take uh, into these homes that they're helping to recover from the storms. And so, yes, we have seen an influx of new volunteers, but we've also seen a dramatic decrease in funding. Um, You know, this issue, you know, the economy, the broader macroeconomic trends that we're seeing are are creating real headwinds for the organization. You know, that I think is coupled with kind of the uncertainty of the election and all of the money that's being diverted into both sides uh, of the Democrats and the Republicans. And then finally, the rise of, of social justice as an issue that's preeminent in many Americans. Uh, the unfortunate reality is that public support for these disasters has waned.
0: So, Jake, let's let's go there a little bit. I mean, I, w- I would think your resources are beyond stretched in a year like 2020 with COVID and this uh, extraordinary storm season that's impacted the United States. Kind of how are you funding your operations? Well,
5: you know, our funding
0: is all... Uh, Private philanthropy. So it's it's corporate funding, it's
5: foundations, and it's individual giving. We don't take any government money, and we don't charge the homeowners that we assist for the services that we provide. And so we really rely on these these institutions, these individuals to to uh, to fund our efforts. And, and as I said, you know if people's pocketbooks are are stretched. We have you know, extraordinarily high unemployment. Many sectors of of the economy, the court, you know, of corporations. Uh, you know, despite where the, you know, the Dow and the NASDAQ are sitting, you know, many of these companies' stock prices are still pummeled. That's, that's been an impact to our bottom line because they have fewer dollars available for philanthropy. And so, yes, we, you know, we're having to kind of clench our jaw here and find creative ways to, to flex into these operations and not leave these communities behind. And it's it's challenging.
1: Tell us how very clearly, Jake, people can donate.
5: Well, if anybody wants to support our work, they can go to TeamRubiconUSA.org. Uh, you know, $5, $500, anything in between, anything above, uh, you know, we'll, we'll maximize the impact that, that that money can have in the community. Uh, you know, if you want to volunteer, you know, that's your most precious resource, your time. We'd love to have you. And even just sharing the word of, of what you're hearing and the work that we're doing uh, can go a long way. So we'd encourage people to, to follow us on social media and share the story of Team Rubicon.
1: TeamRubicon.org and Jake. If people did want to volunteer, what are your criteria? Uh,
5: it's TeamRubiconUSA.org and anybody's eligible to volunteer as long as they're over the age of eighteen. Um, we you don't have to be a military veteran. Uh, it certainly makes up the bulk of our volunteers, but we take people of all stripes, uh, and uh, you know we're just looking for you know great American citizens who are looking to help their neighbors.
1: TeamRubiconUSA.org. I'll say that one more time. TeamRubiconUSA.org. Jake, thanks for sharing your story with us today and uh, we will definitely continue to follow your movements throughout the country and uh, stay safe. And I know that if anybody can, you guys can. Much, much appreciated. That is Jake Wood, founder and CEO of Team Rubicon.